Octavius Winslow, uh, a marvelous name, and uh, unfortunately I don't know any Octaviuses, but maybe that'll change one day. Psalm 130 is in a section of scripture of the Psalms, working through the Songs of Ascents. And there's an order to these ascents, where they continue to go up and up and up, each one ascending from the previous psalm, until the end of the psalms, where you have Psalm 150, a psalm of praise. Praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty expanse. And at Psalm 130, what we're focusing on when it comes to the ascents is the significance of God's forgiveness. The title is Hope in the Lord's Forgiving Love. And so while we're going to spend most of our time in verses 5 and 6, we're going to read the entire psalm so you can see where the psalmist is coming to, or coming from, and where he is going to. I'll spend a couple minutes going through the first four verses and then spend the bulk of our time in verses 5 and 6. So we'll read and then we'll pray for no, this is God's word, not my word. And as such, no man is fit to be able to preach without God in operation. And so first, let's read. Psalm 130. Hope in the Lord's forgiving love, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for gathering your faithful ones here today to worship and honor you. Thank you for the eternal Sabbath day that we know we wait for one day. And yet today, remembering the day that Christ rose from the grave, we have an appetizer. We have a foretaste of the eternal Sabbath day. Please help me as I preach that the things I say would be truthful and that anything that would be false would not be said. We pray that your saints would be lifted up and that you would be glorified. And it is in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. This psalm starts out in the depths. Now this is written by an Old Testament saint for the edification of other saints. And as such, these depths are not that of the depths of hell. They are not that of unquenchable flame. They are the depths of the trials and travails that we go through in this life. Many people talk about being weary pilgrims. Pilgrims progress. And all the trials and tribulations that pilgrim goes through. And there's a number of ways that we end up in these depths because of the fallenness of the world that we're in. One of which that may come to mind is the depths that Job sank into as a result of the work of Satan. 
where Satan goes to God and says, this man, this servant of yours, the only reason that he worships you, the only reason he praises you, is because you've blessed him. So let me take away these blessings, and he will curse you. But as you read through the account of Job, you see that's not at all what Job did. And while Job didn't understand what was going on, and he cursed the day that he was born, he never cursed God. Or you may remember other Old Testament saints like Joseph, thrown into both the pit and the prison. You may remember Elijah after Mount Carmel and all the mental anguish he was undergoing. And you may remember in the New Testament, dealing with Paul in prison, Silas in prison, John exiled to Patmos, the list goes on. But there is no more significant than that of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood. Or when he's in the depths and he weeps as a result of the death of Lazarus, teaching us that death is significant, that even the Son of Man, the Son of God incarnate, would cry over the death of a loved one. And yet, we so often fall into these depths as well, the depths that are the result of loved ones dying, the depths that are the result of Satan's work of the trials and tribulations of physical illness. Some of these are, are visible, broken arm or a limp. Every step you're reminded that your ankle or your knee or your back isn't what it used to be. Or maybe it's an invisible death, cancer diagnosis. Or some sort of physical ailment that no one can see chronic pain, daily headaches. These are things that gnaw at us. And you'll know that when you fall ill, your physical condition has much to do with your spiritual condition. When you're in the depths as a result of a physical ailment, oh, how much more difficult is it to pray? How much more difficult is it to sing hymns, sing psalms, and to love God? And yet it is in these depths, it is in these depths, whether by physical ailment, by mental anguish, anxiety, doubt, depression, these aren't just for the unbeliever. Dear Christian, you know them well, don't you? You know the questions that rest in your heart, that come up every so often. The doubts we have are real. The anxiety we have is real. The depression we deal with is significant. But it is by a cry of the Lord. Look what the psalmist does in verse 1. I have cried to you, O Lord. The psalmist cries, not just a, a prayer of repetition, the same prayer every single night, only habitual at this point. No, this is a, a heartfelt prayer, crying up to God. No doubt tears streaming down his face. The full power of his voice crying up to God. And it is so often by this cry, a cry of repentance, a cry of belief, that the Lord lifts you up out of the depths. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. The Lord is holy, and you are not. 
When you have this high view of God's holiness, you understand the depths of your own depravity. You see the heights of holiness, and you see the depths of sinfulness. And it is because of this that we recognize that even God hearing our prayers, even if he saw fit never to answer any of them, it is a grace for God to hear your prayer in the first place. You can have a confidence that God hears you when you pray. When you thank him for your meal, when you pray for a safe drive, or whatever is going on in your life, you praise him, you thank him, you ask him for, for his help, you pray with, pe with petitions to the Lord, casting your anxieties aside. God is good to hear your prayers. He's good to hear your voice. In verse 3, the psalmist recognizes the sinfulness of sin. It's so easy, and if you do evangelism, you'll notice that in talking to a lot of people, they want to compare themselves to someone else. The really easy one is Hitler. Oh, well, you know, I haven't killed anybody, so it's okay. Oh, I, I didn't organize the Holocaust, so I'm, I'm really not that bad of a person. To look at your next-door neighbor and say, he's not being a good husband. He's got a disobedient son. My, my son obeys. I must be a better father. I must be a better mother. The self-righteousness that, so, that we so often see with others and that we can feel ourselves is a sin nonetheless. One of the hymns we sang this morning reminds us of Acts 17 when Paul is saying to, uh, the, is preaching at Mars Hill, and he says, it is by God that you live and move and have your being. One of the wonderful things about having children in the congregation is that when dealing with matters of our own soul, it's so easy to think, we've got this. And yet, with the little ones around, we remember how much they depend on, on us to organize schedules, to get dressed, for feeding, for nap time, everything. The child needs is supplied by mom and dad. And yet, your child depends less on you than you depend on God. Do you ever think about what it means to exist? You, you think about sustaining yourself by breathing. You think about sustaining yourself by, oh, I have thirst in my throat. My throat is drying up, and so I get a glass of water. Or you think of sustaining yourself by taking care with the food that you eat. But you don't supply your own existence. God gives you means to take care of it, but God is the one who gives you existence itself. If God will, I could cease to exist right now because I don't uphold my own existence. And so in that, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? We see a recognition that God is holy, that I am sinful, and that God is judge. This is the problem for us sinners, is that God is good. And because he's good, he's a good judge. And as a good judge, he cannot sweep sin. He cannot sweep lawlessness under the rug. It must be acknowledged. The book has to be thrown at it. Something must be done. And yet we also know that God forgives. Well, how, pray tell, can a good judge throw the book at you 
and judge sin, and how also can he then come and say that he is forgiving? Somebody has to come and pay the fine. What do you earn when you sin? You earn death. The wages of sin is death. Every sin that you make, you're writing a check for death. Over and over and over again. But there is forgiveness. Somebody came and paid the fine. Truly God and truly man, that's who Christ was. That's who we put our faith in. That's who we believe. That he lived the life that we couldn't. That he earned heaven. And yet he did not see the glory of God to be grasped. He humbled himself, not only to man, which that should be enough. The infinite, holy, perfect God humbles himself to our position? Why would he do that? But simply a display of his love, of his grace, of his mercy. We look at verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you. Child of God, there is forgiveness. It's real, and it can be had. This idea of forgiveness isn't some fairy tale that somebody dreamt up and thought, oh, this would be really nice with all the problems that I have going on. It'd be really nice if there was something like forgiveness. No, it's not a fairy tale. It's real. There is forgiveness with you. The forgiveness that you seek for your sins is found in Christ alone. It is by grace alone that you're saved, by faith alone, through Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. When we look at the second half of verse 4, why would God forgive sinners? He didn't have to. God would be just as merciful if no one was saved. But he shows us his mercy in the display no more significant than of Christ's death and resurrection. And he did this, that you may be feared. The fear of God is a major theme in all of Scripture. One of the, the largest, it's mentioned over 300 times in the entire Bible. The fear of God has two significant aspects to it. There's a sinful fear of God, which we see when Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they've just sinned. They've just eaten the fruit that they weren't supposed to, and what do they do? They hide in creation. We see this also in the book of Revelation, in chapter 6, when the Lord is coming, judgment is coming, and so what do the evil men of the world do? They run into the mountains. They run into the caves, calling on the mountains and caves. Fall down on us. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. They're hiding in creation. But this is a, a sinful fear of God. There is a righteous fear of God. One of the great preachers over the last few decades, Al Martin, he said that the fear of God is to long for nothing more than God's smile and to dread nothing more than God's frown. To fear God is to long for nothing more than God's smile and dread nothing more than his frown. We're, of course, using human language speaking of God, but we know that God doesn't change. 
And, and we have the, the benediction, may the Lord's countenance shine upon you. To fear God rightly is to more highly esteem God's countenance than anything else. It's to go, what does God's countenance shine upon? Where is God's smile? God's smile is in loving him. It's in doing righteousness. That's how you set yourself before God's smile. How do you set yourself before God's frown other than sin? Other than committing cosmic treason of the highest degree. People like to think, oh, well, I haven't done anything that bad. But you could think of lying to someone, and you see how it scales with authority. You lie to your dog, nobody cares. You lie to your child, or you lie to your parent, and you break relationships. You lie to your boss, and you may get fired. You're ushered into the Supreme Court to testify, and you lie, and you could end up in prison. The higher the authority, even though it's the same act being done, you're deceiving them. The higher the authority, the higher the punishment. God, having infinite authority, the punishment must be infinite. And God being a good judge, this is why a loving God would send somebody to hell. Because he is holy. And because he is a good judge. And so now, with these first four verses in view, out of the depths, the, the depths of this life dealing with sin, the effects of sin, mental and physical, the works of Satan, or sometimes God withdrawing himself so that we would know our dependence on him more greatly. And then it's in the depths that we pray, and this is how God lifts us up out of the depths, recognizing God is holy and is judge, and we are not. And then that there is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. We now find ourselves in the position of verses 5 and 6. And this is where we're spending the bulk of our time here today. So let's, let's read it once again. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. These two verses have three key elements to them. They have three verbs. Waiting, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait. My soul waits for the Lord. We see that come up three times. Hoping, as, a, as an element of waiting, in his word I do hope. And thirdly, watching. Another translation would, would render half of verse six, more than they that watch for the morning, indeed more than they that watch for the morning. So we have three verbs, we have waiting, hoping, and watching. When it comes to these, I think first what we want to take a look at is the wedding that has happened between waiting and hoping. These two are wed together. They're inseparable from each other, united together, yet distinct. When we wait for things, we only wait for that which we hope for. I don't know if any of you have dogs, but I'd like you to imagine that you have a 15-year-old dog. Now, dogs don't usually live for that long, and so he's, he's pretty old. And one day, he ran away. How long is it that you would wait for your dog to return before you, you would say, it's probably not coming back anymore? Would you wait a week, a month, six months, a year? 
At some point, if he doesn't return, you're going to say, he's probably not coming back anymore. And it's the moment that you lose hope of your dog returning that you cease to wait for him. Hoping does two things in the operation of waiting, though. Hoping enables the waiting, like we just talked about. And hoping also sweetens the waiting. It makes waiting, though not enjoyable, it makes it easier. Imagine, remember when, when you were a small child, what was the day that you looked most forward to? Was it Christmas or New Year's? Maybe Easter, your birthday? Whenever it was set up for you to go visit grandma and grandpa. Or some of you who have children, you know what days your children wait for most. And what days they are most excited for. The sleeplessness on Christmas Eve because you're waiting for the next day. And that waiting, although no child wants to wait the whole 24 hours, the hope for the next day is so incredible that it sweetens the waiting. And every time the clock ticks by, every moment, they get more excited for that calendar day to turn, for it to finally be Christmas, for it to finally be their birthday. But instead of waiting for calendar days, that's, that's not the life of a Christian. The life of a Christian is to wait for the Lord. We don't know when the Lord is going to return, but we do know the one who we wait on. So then we may ask, well, I have hope, and I'm currently waiting. How do I wait well? How do I do a good job at the task which God has given me, which is to wait for him? We look at verse 6, and it starts to give us hints. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. When there's something in italics, that usually means that the translators have said, we're going to put this in here because it helps you understand what the psalmist is saying or what, the, what scripture is saying. But those words aren't actually there. So we may read it, my soul for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, the watchman for the morning. And this is poetry, and there's a double emphasis here for a reason. By repeating it's this point of emphasis. That's why so often you see Jesus saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Verily, or it means truly. So, so truly, I say to you. But it's not just true. He, he's repeating it. Truly, truly, I say to you. Emphasizing the truth of what he's saying. And so here, the description of our souls waiting for the Lord is more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. There's a double emphasis. And the watchman was a specific job in ancient Israel. We, we don't as often think about it today, but in ancient Israel, it was, it was a really important thing, and you hoped never to need it. But the risk was significant enough that you always wanted a watchman around. When, when in ancient Israel, it's an arid climate, and so that means during the middle of the day, it gets very, very hot. There's not a lot around. But, the, the closer you get to Lake Erie, the later you see the seasons turn. Toledo is very late in seeing a lot of the leaves change color because of the water. But unlike, that, unlike this is ancient Israel. It's very arid, it's very dry, and so the middle of the day, when the sun's up, is very, very hot. And that's why it's so peculiarly, 
so peculiar for us to see occasions where the woman at the well, she's going in the middle of the day. Nobody wanted to do it in the middle of the day. It was very, very hot. It was very uncomfortable. But then the watchman, because he, he has to operate at night, the nights would be very, very cold. Not very uncomfortable, or not very comfortable, I should say. And he has to be up all night. I don't know if some of you have done night shifts, but it seems like every hour you look at the clock and you go, all right, it is 6 p.m. It is now 7 p.m. I have eight hours to go, or nine hours to go, whatever it is. Then it gets to eight, you go, okay. Two hours done, got the rest of it. Every hour you're looking. It's a very uncomfortable job, but it was very important because the watchman, his job was to watch out for thieves and criminals. It's easier to do crimes at night when it's harder for people to recognize who you are. Or shepherds watching their flocks. They would need to have somebody, a watchman, awake at night for all the nocturnal animals that would come out to seek to eat the flock. Wolves and bears, nocturnal animals. And then you would also want a watchman in case there was somebody who thought they would try and start a war. There's a war starting. It's a lot easier to do it when nobody's ready in the middle of the night. And if nobody is there to get everyone ready in the middle of the night, it's much easier to take over a neighboring village or a neighboring city or a neighboring country. And so our waiting is to be a job. There's a, a job component to it. And, and so I would like us to turn, please, to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, we're going to look at the very end of the chapter, starting in verse 42, talking about being ready for his, Jesus' coming. And he says, therefore, be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would, have broke, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them the food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and to eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour when he does not know. And he will cut him to pieces and assign him at a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, what, what we get from here, and what we're getting out of Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6, is that the posture of the Christian is to wait for Christ. The life of the Christian is marked by one of waiting for Christ. And this is one of the points that a lot of people who aren't Christians, who wish to criticize it, that they'll make. They'll say, oh, Christianity, you guys are so focused on something that's far off. You're not concerned with the here and now. You don't do anything. All you're doing is waiting. All you're doing is hoping. But you have to live in the now. And that's exactly what we are not supposed to do. Look what happens to the slave 
When he starts living in the now, he doubts his master. He says, oh, my master's not coming back. I don't believe him. And so while I'm here, I'll do whatever I want. And he begins to abuse the other believers. He abuses the other saints. And then he gets drunk on the master's wine. Oh, to take the Lord's gifts and to abuse them recklessly. And we see that woe is to the one who abuses the gifts that the Lord gives. Now, of the gifts that you've been given, what is most significant? What could be more significant than the gift of faith? Than the gift of a new life in Christ? And so we are to make do and to do well with the gift that we've been given. We remember the parable of the talents where you have the master giving out to three servants. To one he gives many, to the second he gives a little bit less, and to one he still gives a portion, though it's not as significant. What does each slave do? What does each servant do? And I, I keep using the word servant because you're either a servant to righteousness or a servant to iniquity. And so it's very important to remember that freedom means freedom from sin and not freedom to do whatever you want. We are servants to the king of kings. What could be a higher position than that? But we, we look at these servants, and they're given gifts. They're given the talents. And they're told, you need to make well with this. And so the, the first one says, you gave me much, and I have much to return to you. You look at the second one, he says, you, you gave me a portion, and I have given, and I can give you more. I've made do with it. I've made it work. I've worked hard with it. And what does the other one do? He's so fearful of his master that he hides it in the ground and he doesn't do anything with it. For such he is properly rebuked. And so we must make do and we must do well with the faith that we have. So how do you grow in faith? How do you grow in grace? But make an expedient use of the ordinary means of grace. The Christian life is a simple life, and we've seen much of that through the psalm. The Christian life is one of repentance, of recognizing God is holy and that we are not. The Christian life is one of waiting. And as we read verses 7 and 8, the Christian life is one of hoping. And so as we look at verses 5 and 6, and we see the Christian life is one of waiting, one of waiting. How do you then watch? How do you make do? How do you work with the gifts that you've been given well? You make an expedient use of the ordinary means of grace. The Christian life is a simple life. The ordinary means of grace. In worship, we read the word. And that's where we put our hope. Verse 5, and in his word, I do hope. And our hope is put in Christ, the Word of God incarnate. And so it's important for us to read Scripture, to attend to the preaching and the teaching of the Word. But I also ask you, how well do you know Scripture? And I don't mean do you have the entire Bible memorized, but there are particular sins that we all struggle with. That's why we fall into the depths. We stumble over our indwelling sin. And so do you know the Scripture that pertains to your particular temptations? that deal with your particular sins? And have you memorized scripture so that you can dwell on it? Remember what Christ did in the desert when he was tempted by Satan? He rebuts Satan with scripture. And so, do you know your Bible? Do you read it 
regularly? Do you memorize the, the portions of Scripture that help you think on Christ and help you to focus on Him and to remove yourself from evil? We also have the ordinary means of grace, which is prayer. Oh, how wonderful it is that God hears our prayers, that He is attentive to us. Those of you with little children, you know what it's like to need to kneel down with your children to look at them at eye level. And how much farther does God have to condescend to us, to kneel down to us, to hear us? And then he sees it fit to answer our prayers. Oh, what a gracious God we have who answers prayers. It's also in prayers. The more you pray for little things, the more you recognize your dependence on God and everything, the more you will grow in grace, the more you will grow in faith, the more you will grow to love God. Because more dependent, like I said earlier, your children are not as dependent on you as you are on God. And so pray in the little things. God, thank you that I had a safe drive to church this morning. Thank you that I have a job. Thank you that I have a, a safe drive to work, that I have a safe drive home. Thank you for the food. Thank you for my next breath. Breathing comes so natural. Do you, do you ever think about praying to God, thanking him for your next heartbeat, your next breath? And it's by these prayers that God ceases, seizes the moment to fill us with himself. And as you pray, you'll notice that you have a heart that is enlarged for God. And I tell you, child of God, that if your heart longs for God, it longs to be filled of God, then when you realize, oh, my heart is too small, it, ne it needs to be bigger. So you pray, Lord, increase the size of my heart that I may be more full of you. And then when your heart is twice as big, you realize, well, this is insufficient. So, Lord, give me a heart the size of heaven, nay, two heavens. And I tell you that if this is the desire of your heart, if you desire to be full of Christ, to be full of God, you will always be found waiting. But you will always be found growing in grace, growing in faith, and loving God more. We also have baptism. The Puritans talk about improving your baptism because it's not a one-time thing. Now, it may not be a weekly occurrence that you get into the, the baptismal waters and, and put down and taken up, but by remembering your baptism, you can so much be strengthened against sin. Paul, in Romans chapter 5 and 6, he talks about the importance of being just, of the grounds of our justification, how we are justified, and then what we do based off of that. And he says, oh, well, if grace abounds where sin abounds, then there, there's this sinful, devilish idea that seeps itself into there and says, well, if sin abounds where grace abounds, then why don't I sin more so that grace can abound more? Paul rebukes such a thought, saying, God forbid, may it never be. How can you who have died to sin live in it any longer? And that's the reminder your baptism gives you. As Christ went down into the grave and was resurrected on the third day, so you go down into the baptismal waters and you're lifted up, dead to sin, living in new life, a slave to righteousness. If you're a slave to righteousness, how can you be a slave to sin any longer? And there's the Lord's Supper. 
the reminder of Christ's body, which was broken, and his blood, which was shed. It's by his blood that we are clean, that our sins are washed white as snow. In, God, in Christ being truly God and truly man, he really did suffer on the cross. He really did die. We can imagine what it's like with our own wrists, our own ankles, what it would be like to have your side pierced. But what we cannot imagine is what it's like to undergo the wrath of God, poured out on, on him, drank the very dregs, more than being torn, rent asunder into a thousand pieces. This is the pain that Christ underwent. And it is a pain that we cannot apprehend in the slightest. But he did it in our stead. That all who believe on Christ would not perish but have eternal life. This is how we wait on God. This is how we watch well. We make an expedient use of the ordinary means of grace. The Christian life is one that focuses on Christ. It's one that remembers his death and his resurrection. You hate your sin? Excellent. How is it then that you are to mortify your sin? How do you flee from sin? The best way to mortify your sin is to focus on Christ, to think on the cross. If you think on the cross, how can you sin? How, how, without just emptying that of the significance of the cross. If you're thinking on Christ in his, in his return, how do you sin? For what a great return is going to be the, what we wait for, the waiting of our Lord when he returns. For when he returns, perfect justice will finally be brought to bear on all the sins that happen, on all the crimes, on every problem that this world is full of. And we wait for victory over sin. If you're like me, that, that phrase is not to give a pang in your stomach. Oh, how you long for victory over sin. Oh, how you long for that day where Christ is full, uh, where you are full of Christ, where your body is redeemed and you will sin no more. Oh, what a glorious day we wait for. This is the Christian life. I wait for the Lord. I wait for his return, and I do not know when, and I do not know where, but I do know that he's coming, and so I will be a faithful slave in the moment. My soul waits deeper than, than your body. It's not just looking at the clock going tick, tock, tick, tock. It's waiting on the Lord, making an act of use, redeeming the time well making an expedient use of the ordinary means of grace. Because as Hebrews says, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, you will die. Unless, unless the Lord comes soon, you will die. And everyone who doesn't think about his or her death does themselves a great disservice. But then we're told this, so Christ also, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Dear Christian, your salvation has been accomplished. It was accomplished at the cross. And you now just wait for the consummation. You wait 
as a, as a bride and a bridegroom wait for their wedding day, and they wait for the consummation, they wait to be in full union. You wait for your body to be resurrected so that you can be in full union with Christ. This is what we wait for. This is what we hope for. The, the psalmist ends by saying, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness. With him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I can't help but think that the psalmist would have approved of amazing grace. O, o Lord, you my shield and portion be for now and forevermore. Faith is that which sees that which we cannot see with our own eyes, and, but hope is that which grasps it. So lay hold of Christ. If you were in a, in a shipwreck in the depths that, that you're thrown into, the plank that you hold on to, the plank that floats, is Christ. He is your only hope. He is salvation. And if you're here today and you wonder at this hope, that Christians have. You wonder at this waiting. I tell you, it's all because of Christ. It's not because we're working it up in ourselves. It's all because of Christ. Because with the Lord, there is loving kindness. With him is abundant redemption. That sin that goes in the back of your mind that tempts you to think, oh, well, God can forgive anybody and anything. Except for this. No, for with him is abundant redemption. You can never sink below the waves out of the depths of his grace. And if it wasn't clear enough, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Many of you know what it's like to watch. You have little ones, or you've been a little one who's fallen ill. Neither you've waited up all night, or... You have been waited on all night. Or mom or dad is changing out the towels on your head, checking the throw-up bucket, making sure you've had the right food all night. Every couple hours, just as you're about to fall asleep again, it's time to get up. And you know what it's like to watch for the morning when your spouse will be up and they can help you take care of your, your little one. But I tell you that no one has waited, nobody has watched more. Not a parent up all night, not a bride or a bridegroom waiting for their wedding day, nor even a pregnant mother in the week that she should give birth, then waits the Christian for Christ. So wait on the Lord. Pray in your temptation, and he will strengthen you. Make an expedient use of the ordinary means of grace that you would grow in faith and grow in grace. This is the word of God. Amen.